Welcome to a very special edition of Top Lines and Tales. Once again this week we are kindly sponsored by Harbro, manufacturers of high-quality livestock nutrition. Well, I'd just like to say happy birthday to us at Top Lines and Tales, as on our 57th episode this week we celebrate one year since the start of this podcast. The series originally, of course, was brought out on what would have been Royal Smithfield Week, so it's only fitting that, once again, we revisit that Royal Smithfield show when we can have a listen to the highlights of what since has become to be known as the Smithfield Tapes. Starting with our very first podcast guest, the legendary Ian Anderson. Ian, if I can come to you, uh, welcome. When was your first Smithfield, Ian? First Smithfield was in 1965. And that was, uh, I was working uh, for a major garden of Luda Estates at Blair Athol. Uh, and I went down there with uh, a Highland steer. And the only one we had. None of us remember the train going down. I mean, you will be the, one of the few people that would remember going down on those journeys. And uh... You know, I remember the long journey from my first ever time also went to the, the Scottish National, which was in the old Waverley Market yeah. in the middle of Edinburgh. The Waverley, the Waverley Market, the Waverley Station. Oh, right. And then the, the long journey down, and we went down, myself and another uh, four or five stockmen in a guards van at the back of the cattle wagon, uh-huh. and, and there was a, 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 a coal fire in it, and that kept us water. We all were going at the, sitting in the siding and outside the Ellis Club for bloody ages, <laughs> and, then, and then eventually we went up and in. And the, the, the cattle were uh, taken out and into a huge lift, then up we went, these huge lifts, and uh, into the Earl's Court itself. And I think we got inspected there. I think there was, they got dusted with lice dust and things like that at the time, if I remember. But anyway, that was my very first uh, experience. And as I say, a wee guy from the hills of Inverness, or a way to London. I got my eyes open. <laughs> sure I think we all got our eyes open when we went to Smithfield, to be fair. I- Sandy Beaton, you've had a long association with the uh, Royal Smithfield Show. What were your first successes down there in the sand? My first success was in 1963 with a Hereford steer for Commander Collard that was raid champion. And he was huh. called Double Diamond. We called him Double Diamond because he had two crosses of, of uh, Vern Diamond in his pedigree. And I always remember Lord Rocket must have been there for the day, and he was head of Ein Cooper and Allsops. And he, he came to me and asked me why I called the steer a double diamond. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, if I get the chance, I always drink it. So he <laughs> gave me a tenner, which was a lot of money in 1963. <laughs> Welcome, Hector Campbell. Hector, you'd have had a... Long association again with Smithfield, uh, mainly showing cattle for, of course, the great David Sinclair. You'd take quite a lot of cattle. How many cattle would you usually be taking down to Smithfield from David? There would always be in the teens, 15. The most we ever took was 28. 28, aye. That's a, that's a lot of cattle. And it'd be, a, it'd be a huge job with that many cattle, without the show and, and, and at home. And I've got to ask, where the hell did he get all this cattle from? At that time... He had an Angus bull called Kermak Thorn that bred a lot of 
good females and most of the, the baby beef ones were homebred. Phil Sellers, welcome to the podcast. You and I go back a fair way. Phil, when we first met, I woke up in the bed next to you in the bowels of Earl's Court, I think in, uh, in 1977. Uh, and I remember... Mm asking you if it was your first year there as it was mine and you said um no can you tell me your first year at smithfield phil 1961 i was i was 10 year old but smithfield wasn't always about winning the supreme champion uh, not only one or two animals could do that the rest of us would take a variety of other breeds as well uh, so we can fill in the classes and uh, and get some more crack i appeared at london weekend television with a kianini that is one of my claims to fame and on this Sunday, I think it was. Hector, can you explain to our listeners what uh, what a Chianini is? <laughs> it's not a drink. It's a Chianina with It's an Italian breed of cattle. It's an Italian breed of cattle, not a cocktail. Okay. And, and uh, what the hell were you doing with one of those? Oh, we had four of them. Everyone was lost in its class. <laughs> um, <laughs> but the Kianini Society put up £4,000 to be split amongst the Kianini entries. So David Sinclair entered four, and there were only four there, so he got 4000 quid for the... <laughs> So, that, so, so that's what we'd have paid our wages for that weekend. <laughs> Welcome, uh, Sharon Sellers. You guys would have a few uh, different breeds down there as well. Sid always insisted on taking a Galloway because the Galloway Society used to give you £100 to take one. So we had to have a Galloway whether we wanted one or not because that would pay for the fuel. The show just had its own atmosphere though, didn't it, uh, Sharon? Tell us a little bit more about uh, about that. I think just arriving in London in your lorry, you're driving around the middle of London with your cattle in the lorry, it's just bizarre. Um, and that's like the start of the atmosphere before you get parked up and before you get past all the vet checks and then you get inside, get your digs and then that's it. It's like party week, hard work week and <laughs> I remember, atmosphere. I remember the... Um... Uh, the the parties in in the Seagrove Road car park. We'd get there at I'd go down with Howard Patrick. We'd get there at one in the morning, and and the party would be going on until they opened the doors at six o'clock to let us in. <laughs> Andy, you don't call it a party. It was a welcome drink. <laughs> Bart, how you doing? Yeah, good, thank you. Okay, and uh, you and I go way back as well. I, I remember you having a milk round and and when you had hair. And, yeah, that's right. Yeah. And uh, when was your first Smithfield bat? It was sometime in the eighties, Andy. But I don't—I remember my first Smithfield because I took some cattle for Sue Eaton Williams, and I was kind of late getting there. But I couldn't get in Earl's Court. I kept going past the entrance. Well, I couldn't get in Seagrave Car So people had seen me, and they all said, "Where's Bart? He should be here by now." And Willie said he's been past it three times, but he doesn't seem to be able to get in. Colin Suter, welcome. You'd have had a long journey down to London from from home. I always shared that. Shared the lorry down with Hector, and as the day went day went on till we arrived at Smithfield itself, like Hector got a little more intoxicated as it went. And I remember one year, uh, Alan Scott, the hollier that came down, he had a, a Renault Magnum, and it was the doors set off to one side. And watching Hector going up, 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 trying to climb into the car. As the night went on, it got worse and worse and worse. 
all this before we'd even got through the door. But uh, physically getting into the place was a bit of a nightmare as well, wasn't it, Sharon? <laughs> it was. Going up the ramp was a, you know, if you arrived on a real snowy, frosty, skiddy um, weather and you'd got to get your beast up that ramp, you do your vet check and then get up that ramp and you knew when you were up that ramp and inside you'd made it. Doogie Macbeth, another seasoned campaigner in those great days. Uh, Doogie, you'd arrive there and it could be snowing and slippy, as Sharon said, and uh, getting up those ramps there. And uh, Chris, it was hardly safe, was it? Well, if you had your cattle halter good enough and well enough, it, it shouldn't have been a problem. But there was one or two that obviously decided that they weren't playing ball. And the 30 foot drop from. Earl's Court down into the car park below. If a beast had went over there, it would have been curtains for it, unfortunately. <laughs> and the wooden sheds that we had. and You'd get the cattle off, off, the, off the wagon and they'd all be so short of water, they'd all trying to drink out of every puddle. And, and they'd be oh. in there, they'd check them for warts and ringworm and stones and, and it was uh, it was, it was a nerve-wracking yeah. time. When you got through the door, that was the worst bit. There was a bloody people building stands everywhere and junk everywhere and it was a bit of a job negotiating everything to actually get to where you needed to tie the cattle up. Of course Smithfield wasn't just about uh, cattle there was a vibrant sheep section. Uh, Malcolm Stewart welcome tell us a little bit more about that. Section was kind of tucked away at Earl's Court they were they were housed upstairs and, and uh, had been for years and years and years and we used to get up there on the escalator but uh, a question a lot of onlookers ask is uh, how the hell did you get them up there? They arrived obviously early in the morning. They were unloaded in the bowls of Earl's Court, where they were vetted and checked and ear tags checked and whatever else. And then we went up in a lift. And the general thing was, if you got into the lift, you were in the show. Um, so that was your one aim. That was the first aim of Smithfield was to actually make it into the lift. And then you had to run them through because that Friday morning that show was still getting constructed. So you run them through trade stands and amongst electricians, painters, joiners, and and you pend them up. It was a bit of a circus, but all great fun. <laughs> it was chaos. I think I think we've we've discussed this in certainly in the cattle lines that you think this is so chaotic. How the hell does this thing work? But somehow it did, and you just got on with it. It did. And, 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 it just was a lot of teamwork. It was a great team building exercise. <laughs> everybody first thing in the morning um, and then you just go on with it for the rest of the week. And maybe had a dog. Maybe they had a dog. <laughs> just okay. as well. I don't think it would understand all the different regional accents that would have, because I mean obviously there was guys from Scotland, Kent, Devon, Wales, just a real old mix of what was going on. Bart, we used to used to take, wash the cattle outside, cold water, just tie them to anything that didn't move, and just tie them up and chuck a bucket over them. There's no power washers or. or, or, or... No, I think I think I was probably the first one with one, Andy. I took one in one year, don't you remember? I had to thread a cable down through the toilet window and then out into another room, across the way somewhere, and hang it above because it was going underneath the forklifts and things. And I managed to get my washer set up that year. And that was the, the one year I actually became friends with David Sinclair because he decided he would use it. I was, I was a popular man that year. I remember using it as well, I think. And Hector, there'd be cables running everywhere and hair everywhere and you, you're trying to find a small corner to get to, to get and work into. It's a nightmare, isn't it? Yeah, cables running through puddles of water. My health and safety would have had a nightmare these days. And those first dryers, uh, the, the Wolf Sapphire, was something that came out of a DIY shop. and uh, But they were a revolution to us, <laughs> weren't they? 
Leaf blower. Leaf blower, is that it? I had one for Christmas in, in 1977 there for my, for my parents, and that was the best Christmas present I ever had. And then inevitably the, the electric would trip and it'd trip out and the whole place would just go, plunged into silence and we'd all go to the bar until somebody got it fixed again. And everybody blame everybody else. <laughs> That's about right. I've heard it suggested that uh, somebody who will remain nameless tripped it on purpose so that he could get away and get a dram. <laughs> <laughs> of course, again, what a lot of people don't realise is that uh, underneath Earl's Court there was a complete another level, another entire um, layer of Earl's Court, if you like, which included our uh, dormitories and sleeping quarters. And you you, you slept in, in B block as well. Uh, I, I did, remember yeah. it, it was bloody warm down there, wasn't it? It was warm, and it was just a bit noisy when the train decided to come. <laughs> yeah, so there were some great characters back in, in in B block there. I can remember the the Welsh boys by the entrance. Uh, Winston Bowen, Mervyn Abredos, Die Bonks. Die was yeah. an amazing character. <laughs> Mervyn Die were nicknamed the Owls because he used to go out all night and sleep most of the day. <laughs> Die was something else, wasn't he? I mean, Di, he just seemed to know everybody. You know, I think he knew everybody in London, that guy. He was just something. Yeah, he knew far too many people, I'll tell you. <laughs> and, and what other characters? I remember Julian Hopwood and his dad being down there. Who else can you remember in, 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 in that block? Well, Willie Seals used to kick down there, didn't he? And uh... Peter Best, Packet. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I remember an old boy called Alan Crookshank, and uh, I think he used to dress cattle for for John Mansfield. And I don't know how old he was, but he he was always pissed, and and and. Uh, but he used to nick everybody's grub um, out of their their pantry box. So so uh, big Gar- big Gary Owen put a mousetrap in there and caught him caught him on the fingers. <laughs> <laughs> I, I remember the owls came in one night, really, really, well, one morning. The owls had been out one night, so they decided to bring a bit of entertainment back with them in the form of two young ladies. And Willie Seals was trying to get them into bed with him, and Sid was trying to get them out. <laughs> Sid weren't having any of that. <laughs> uh, and we're go, going back to, to Sid, I remember there being a... a, a um, a campaign saying to, to, I think it was to do with a gas board, and it was like, tell Sid, so everybody used to go around, there was big signs all over London saying, tell Sid, so we used to tell him every time we saw him, poor old bugger. Can you remember the, the garden centre they created round the bed? I was, oh, yeah. was going to say that, it was one year, one year Sid wasn't well, so Jill had, had nicked a plant from one of the trade stands and put it by his bed. And, yeah. and as the word got round, then more plants started to appear until about midnight, and he was totally surrounded by them. It actually started because he said he wanted the Christmas tree out of the foyer. He wanted to get that down to the billet, and he was going to take it home. So bigger and bigger and bigger plants arrived each night and he still wasn't satisfied until he got the Christmas tree and the last morning he woke up he thought he'd woken up in a forest because everybody had taken him more and more plants like a jungle it was like the botanical gardens <laughs> do, do you remember when he uh, nicked his pajamas Fred Arrington and <laughs> took him to the is it, tournament pub and the uh, Put him on a mannequin. On a mannequin, yeah, that was it, on a mannequin. And my dad walked in and he, he looked at it and he said, hey, I think they're my bloody pyjamas <laughs> over there. How the hell have they got down here? <laughs> Fred Arrington and Sandy Beaton had took them. Sandy, that's a bit of an accusation. Have you got anything to say to defend yourself? Uh, well, <laughs> somehow or other, uh, one of our company found one of these uh, nude mannequins. 
on the way out of the hall, going to the going to the Prince of Wales, and then they say somebody puts a sellers' pajamas on it, but I. I never saw that happen at all, but uh, I think he did have a pair of pyjamas on. <laughs> Phil, going, going back to that downstairs, and it was just a maze of corridors down there. went on for miles and miles with his grey concrete and spiders. And uh, Do you remember oh, the old yeah. canteen, Phil? That was good, though, weren't it? That was good. It was about 10, good... pence, 10 pence for a breakfast or something, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, it was amazing, that was, Andy. That was really good. <laughs> I, I remember spending about three hours looking for the bloody place because everything looked the same. I, I've still got nightmares now about walking around grey corridors looking for looking for my breakfast. And there were always a few farmers, Phil, wandering, wandered around downstairs looking for a freeway into the show. And uh, for, yes. for a fiver, you could direct them to the, to the service lift yes. for, for you, bar six if, if, if you, you wanted to. Do that. That. If, do you remember that? Do you remember that? We needed a bit of pocket money. <laughs> <laughs> Sandy, you were the scoundrels, you and Piccolo Pete and Colin Davis and Prowler and Fred, and you're always up to bloody mischief, the lot of you. Just uh, tell me what it was like down there. <laughs> oh, it was good, yeah. I remember, uh, do you remember Gordon Lobbin? He was at, he was up on the Cotswolds on Hereford. He found a bicycle down there one night, and he, he said it wanted repairing, so he, he finished up just about dismantling it. I don't know if the fella came the next day to ride it, but he would he would have a hell of a job. <laughs> I I was told, uh, I think uh, it was either Piccolo or yourself got on it and rode it around the dormitory, came into our B block and rode it twice around the dormitory and buck out the door again. <laughs> oh, that was Piccolo, Pete. He was always fitter than me. <laughs> Malcolm, there'd be similar sort of stories, I guess, going on up the stairs as well. Well, the great lady Muriel Johnston had, I think, had had a dry sherry too many and got a wee bit wobbly on her feet. So she was sitting in a kiss to regain her composure. And we thought, well, how are we going to get Muriel from here into the, 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 the Mowbray? So some she says, go and get a wheelbarrow, Robert. So Robert and Julie went to the wheelbarrow, liberated one of the stand. So we got Muriel loaded into the wheelbarrow. But this time she recovered and thought this was great fun, two young men chasing around Smithfield in a wheelbarrow. Well, we came to a T-junction or a crossroads in the trade stands, I went right, Robert went left, the, 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 the bottle came off the, the wheelbarrow and Muriel went straight on. <laughs> oh, Lord above. And one morning I woke up and my bed was in a totally different place. What happened? I think Pete Bodley was involved in this as well. You guys, I was fast asleep and you carried my bed down down the, the long corridor and then stuck me in the in the iso- in the isolation box and there were people turning up for the show and they're all wandering by having a look into this, this box there and it's me lying in there fast. Eventually, I'm not sure if health and safety caught up with it, but uh, the place got condemned, and probably rightly so, and we all moved on. I think uh, later on, we, we, we all moved into hotels. I certainly know when Jill came down, we used to, I used to move into the Mowbray for, for uh, two or three days when she was there, and uh, that, was, that was some party house, the Mowbray. Oh, well, you see, you must have been better off than us, because Phil took me to some dowdy place on Phil's court that right. had got horrible candlewick bedspreads with bits missing out of them, and 19 furniture, scratched furniture, and he thought that'd be good enough for me. <laughs> and, and then we used to, we all used to head uptown, you're saying about the owls, but we all did it as well, we used to head up, up nightclub until till four or five in the morning back then, I don't know how the hell we did it. But that, uh, then were the days, um, yeah. night in particular, we um, 
Bartle will <laughs> well remember this. I think we danced constantly for about six hours. Where were we, Bart? Hammersmith Pally, that was. Yeah. Correct. Yeah, that was some night that was on the tables. I was feared we were going to fall off because there was a big balcony in front of us, and if we fell off there, that would have been good night at the end. <laughs> Donald McPherson, uh, welcome to this episode of Reminiscence. Uh, and you or your father would uh, would certainly enjoy a bit of crack too. Old Ewan would enjoy a drama and, and the crack, and he'd liven up just about any party I ever went to anyway. And uh, uh, he, he was a West Coaster through and through, wasn't he? 100%, yeah. And, you know, he... He lived for it right until his dying days. He was just, that was all that was in his head was uh, Winter Fair, Smithfield, and the local shows, Lauren Show and Middergale and for William. So, you know, it was all, uh, he loved it. And it. But it wasn't about the winning, although he did like to win as well. But it wasn't all about that. It was, it was about the crack. Malcolm. How, how much, as a sheep breeder, how much did that, that Smithfield champion rosette mean to you in, 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 from business terms that, or was it just, just a hobby? It, that's what I wanted to do. I mean, I was, you know, when I was going full belt at it, that's with a flock of ewes special for the job, they were lambed in June. We bred the ewes to go into this flock, feed with the nutritionists employed like everybody else did. They were just programmed from before they were conceived for the, the first week in December. Once the show actually got started, uh, you got to get your animals to the ring and back out again on that Monday and Tuesday. It all seemed to fall into place, though, didn't it? And also, Hector, you'd have to pass with your beast. You'd have to pass bar six on the way to the ring very often, which was uh, uh, um, quite necessary. Yeah, it was quite handy to have a friend there just to hand a glass out now and again if you were getting thirsty. And, and not just for yourself, though. We'd give the give, give a dram to the beasts as well. Would you do that? Oh, sheer and sheer like. <laughs> well, the year of the power cuts. You remember when the barriers? You'd have a glass of whiskey on the counter, and you couldn't get at it because the barrier had come down. <laughs> you had to wait till you had to wait till the lights come back on to get you get finish your drink. Well, the be, the best one in, in, in bar thirteen upstairs. The year Bruce Lang. He brought a penny TV bred by his good pal George Mellon, got a first prize, and they decided to dress for the next day. Well, by the time they were finished, they had the, st- the dressing stands physically in the bar. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, a show like that attracted uh, uh, its share of famous faces, but none more so, of course, than the, than the royal family. Hector, the Queen Mother was just so interested in everything, and she... She couldn't wait to get out of the main ring and then walk down down the lines and go and talk to everybody and just she just loved it. But but it, it, I, I believe that she uh, she had something to say in in the seventies about your hair, Hector. She said it was quite awful. <laughs> yeah, well, everybody had hair like that in the seventies. <laughs> Thankfully, we did. To be fair, but they're walking down the lines, down the Aberdeen Angus lines. Weird. Uh, little black heifer and she could kick for Britain and my job that day was to stand behind this heifer just in case it lashed to you. <laughs> I've had all sorts of jobs in London. But... Sandy you'd know a little bit about that you'd have had a few loose-footed ones amongst the Galloway cattle you used to take down. Yeah well the amusing thing to me was that beast could stand me but nobody else and he kicked like he kicked like a bloody horse kicked backwards <laughs> but Muriel knowing what Galloway's like she she must have known that because 
she never touched that animal on the back end. She felt him on his rib and every all. But he was, if you'd have pushed that bullock, he would have fell over. He was half full of whiskey <laughs> to try and get him to stop kicking, and it didn't. Ian, the prize winners, of course, all got introduced to uh, some of these celebrities as they came through, particularly, of course, the Queen Mother. An amazing lady to chat to. She said, uh, hello, Ian, I've seen, it's about time I've seen you again. It's been 12 months since you said. <laughs> 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 no, she said that you've got time later on, you plan to come into the wee back room for a dram. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, I, I had to decline that particular time, but uh, I said that, you know, we'd, we'd meet up again some other time for a dram. Yeah. Keith Jemson, uh, welcome. Another familiar face down there at Smithfield. And Keith, considering we got 400 cattle into the middle of Smithfield and then out again and the chaos that that could cause, it uh, it seemed to run like clockwork, really. There'd be the odd uh, uh, issue that uh, us as stewards would iron out or, or yourself would iron out. and uh, But generally, it just seemed to flow, didn't it? It was run by people that knew how to do things. And us younger people, as we were when we started, we had respect for those people. Mm -hmm. And what they said went. You know, you didn't argue with anybody. If they said jump, you just said, how high, sir? Can anyone remember the fire? Yes. Down mm -hmm. in the basement with a straw, the mm -hmm. hay. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, I do remember that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was, a, that was animal rights. It was. Uh, what, yeah. It was, it was which animal. is... Which is why I'm going to mention it, because it was the animal rights and Peter, as they call themselves now, they, they thought that uh, yeah. it would be sensible to set fire to a, to a shed full of 400 animals just to, uh, to, it, yeah. to, to save okay. animal rights. That didn't, didn't make a lot of sense then and still doesn't. No, was... But I remember being there at the time, I think it was a Saturday afternoon, a Saturday evening, and, and having to get all the cattle outside, literally you know, four or five in each hand, we were all hoying the thing, things down the ramp and standing outside, and the smoke was pouring up through the, through the grating yeah. underneath them. It was quite scary. And as you said, we were at the show for for a week, and it was it was tiring. And then uh, we've mentioned this again. We'd all get home, and we'd all get pneumonia because we'd all be. <laughs> I, I can remember being taken ill at Smithfield. That's back in my Sussex days, and I was rough. I was rough, and they even got the vet to me. Uh, Jill Owen, welcome to the podcast. Uh, Jill, tell us a little bit about uh, your earlier days at Smithfield. Um, our first year there was 1988, but back in those days, Andy, it was very different to today because you could we could stand in Carlisle Market and you could pick a good bullock out of a pen, and yeah, you'd have to pay a bit more, but we very rarely paid over a £1,000 for a show beast. Jill has a fair point there, doesn't she, Donald? But it's a, it was everybody's dream to win, there wasn't it, to get your beast into that glass box. Um, and and you, you were no stranger to the to the glass box, uh, Donald. You won Smithfield three times in all, I think twice in London, and then once when it went on to its uh, its new venue. Is that right? Mm -hmm, I think so. Yes. And, yes, and, actually, actually. And then another three times reserve as well, which puts you in yeah. the glass box five times, which is up there with. Uh, some of the most successful exhibitors, uh, certainly of the century. So, uh, in yeah. fact, in fact, for a decade, you were bloody hard to beat. To be fair. Yeah, for a wee while, for a wee while. In that glass box, there, it was a sort of magical feeling being inside there. People sort of standing outside, yeah. peering at you like you're some sort of specimen. Somebody likened being in the glass box like like being inside the tent, pissing out for a change. I thought that was a good analogy. <laughs> Another well-known face in the sheep lines upstairs was Robert Patterson. Robert, uh, welcome to this podcast. You, uh, you'd have had your share of wins up there in, on the sand? 
fortunate enough that the judge liked her lambs on the, the first day and uh, the, the championship judge thought the same. But the thing about the show ring at Smithfield was it was uh, to show the sheep in sand. Mm-hmm. And my God, you're, you would know about it by the time you'd shown for a day in that, that ring and that sand. Your knees were absolutely gouping. But the great thing about the sand was if you'd one lamb smaller than another, you could build them up. <laughs> <laughs> you would spend, when the judge had his back turned, you were you were pulling sand in below their feet. And no, oh, what a carry on, man. But... Donald. Your first win was in uh, 89 with probably one of the, the best animals that many of us had ever seen, um, a, a beast called the bandit. Yeah, that's right. It, he was he was a wee bit before his time, probably. Um, you know, in today's market, he wouldn't really be looked at, but at the time, he was way ahead of his time. I remember... We saw a photo of him in the Scottish Farmer, and then my dad went up to see him at Latherham Show. Uh, James Mackay bred him. Well, he did the deal with James, and then went up to collect him. Uh, and when he brought him home that night, we let him loosen the buyer. And geez, you know that feeling when the hair stand up in the back of your neck, and you just think, "Ooh, here we go, we've got something here." And we just knew that he was a wee bit special. The kind of modern beasts now have got so much more width and muscle about them. Um, back in our day, Andy, they were they were all uh, very showy, flashy, nice heads and very correct legs. Uh, but there wasn't so many with the big carcasses. Now everything's got a big carcass on it, and it's not so easy getting the flash and the legs. But when you do, boy, you hit the jackpot then. Jill, would you contradict that? Um, for me, and it was actually a year that I just went down to, to Smithfield with the young farmers, and I just stood outside the glass box in amazement when I looked at the bandit. I just thought he was, he just took my breath away. He was so, he just seemed so far ahead of his time. Just tremendous, absolutely tremendous. I gave up showing cattle when I took on a job as cattle steward there, but uh, my father carried on showing a few, few lambs upstairs there. Do you remember your showing up? Absolute clinking pair of bloody manes. They were about 60 kilos. They were way too big, but they were a clinking pair of lambs. I do remember that. It's uh, uh, my lack of experience will never, never cease to amaze me. The Texels came steaming in in the 80s, I suppose, or the late 80s, and uh, about the same time the Charolais were doing the same thing downstairs, and, and uh, they turned the thing on its head a little bit. And I think it was Dave McKerra that won with the first Texel. Would that be right? Anybody remember that? Yeah, possibly would be. The one that really dominated it was Alec Brown. Once he learned, you know, that's what you had. Alec dominated it for two or three years. He was, he was the one that really took the Texels to the top, I would say. Is that, would that be fair, Robert? He's, oh, that would be right. Uh, Alec. Alec was the main man for I would, the, late, the mid to late 80s, I would have thought. He would be pretty untouchable. Uh, Richard Colgrave, another man who, who, who was hard to beat. And... Yeah, well, he was one of those. There was, there was a few guys that would always... Um, you would always look at and you would say, well, if we can get past them, we're not going to be far away. Mm-hmm. Um, and Richard would certainly be one of those guys that the rest of them would be saying the same about, you know. As with downstairs, I suppose, from time to time, the sheep lines would put up a little bit of controversy, Robert. Oh, there would always be questions asked about certain people when, well, how their sheep were bred, you know, uh, how people get their lambs just that wee bit sparkier and things. But um, there was always... Uh, 
we we corners of people grumbling about somebody's pen and shooting they, because they looked a bit different, you know. No passports back then. No passports still. No. So it, it was it was a, it was a, it was no science attached to it, was it? You had to believe. No DNA or nothing, <laughs> so. I all just added to the crack, I suppose. <laughs> I, it wasn't just the kiss parties though at London. The crack sort of was continuous. It started from when we got there, and then we're in Bar Six, and then the Sheep Bar, and the Prince of Wales, and the Mowbray. Anybody listening to this, to think we were pissed all the time. It's a fact, but mind you, <laughs> a lot of the time we were, and it, but it was just a kind of steady drink, though. It wasn't like paralytic and then a big hangover. It was just kind of steady, and then. In the morning, she just went in gently with the port and brandies and just eased into it gently at bar six. Mm-hmm. And we, uh, we liked them. But of course, most nights we would have a kiss party if we could. Uh, and that was, if I remember right, was some party we had at, at Farmtech and in, 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 in yes. some kiss party, Donald. I think that was the one where the walls burst, wasn't it? I, I think was, the walls burst. Yeah. I think everything burst, to be honest. Yeah, I think you're right. <laughs> I, 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 you probably don't know this, but I um, myself and Donald Bigger that cleared up the, um, around the kiss party the next morning, sort of breakfast time, and uh, for anyone who's around, and we picked up fifty-three empty whiskey bottles from. from that party. <laughs> <laughs> oh, jeez! Yeah, that does not surprise me. <laughs> what do you remember about it, Donald? Not a lot. Uh, I remember going to the off license three times in total, like once at the start and then twice after that. So yeah. And then the rest is a blank, uh-huh. I have to say. Because <laughs> the kiss part is originally was just a few people around around a box, but th- by the time we got to the last show, there was an entire room full of kiss and three or four hundred of us in there. Uh, and, and, and we were supposed to be out of Earl's Court by six o'clock in the evening or seven or whatever it was. And, and the, all the security guards had, had uh, formed and they, they, they basically made a human circle around the, the, the kiss and they were asking us to leave. Uh, and um, I, as a steward, Donald Bigger had said, I was, you know, go on, Andy, you deal with this. And he sent me out to, to talk to these guys to, to, to buy you guys another hour of drinking up time before, uh, before they came in and had a massive fight. And all the guys inside were going, come on, bring, bring it on. It was just chaos. Bart, you got a few memories from the kiss parties? The Scotch lads, quite late on this was, a lot of the Scotch youngsters were getting a bit raucous in them days. They decided to bear the backsides when we were, seeing, we were in the usual flower Scotland and all that malarkey. And they bared the backside, so Willie but the missus decided she'd strip off instead. That was a much better idea. So she, <laughs> got, she got on a showbox in the middle <laughs> in the kiss party and stripped off her. Most of the Scotch girls were horrified, but everybody else thought it was a just top job. <laughs> it, it, it was, until, uh, until Willie covered her modesty and, and took her off. I'm not going to comment. <laughs> 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 anyway, Sharon, t- times started to change, and and uh, and more women used to start showing the animals fluttering your eyelids at the judge. It was despicable behaviour. <laughs> you did whatever you had to do, Andy, <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't care if it worked. <laughs> Jill, the show did become a little bit more female orientated at last, didn't it? When we used to come down to Smithfield, um, we used to bring the lorry down, and we used to take Marion Doan and Fiona and their Galloways, and we'd all come down together. And there was a really nice nice group of girls back then, and yeah, we just, we, we all got on, and yeah, it seemed to start a bit of a change. Because I remember donkeys years ago at 
the old Birmingham fat stock show. You'll remember this, Andy. My dad used to go there, and there was like the stock men's evening and strippers and all sorts. Whereas uh, that had all changed, thank goodness, when uh, <laughs> when uh, in the late 80s. But it wasn't just inside the exhibition hall either. We'd spill out into the streets around Earl's Court. In fact, London used to say it would take more money in Smithfield Week than it would uh, the whole of the rest of the year put together. The Mowbray was one of our favourite watering holes, Donald. Oh, fantastic times. Like the, the Mowbray Court was just bouncing when we were all in. And the, it was the big South African boy, I can't remember his name, uh, that was behind the bar. And every round you bought because the, the rounds were going all over the place. Every round came to the same price. It was always £90. It's like, holy shit! But the um, the barman, he was on 23-hour shifts, and the old third used to call him Sinbad, if you remember. Uh, it was a bit when, if you, if you got a first prize, you come down in the morning, and whoever had fallen asleep in the bar the previous night or that morning, they got some old duvets and, and the hoiked the duvets over anybody that was still there at last orders and let them sleep off in the bar. <laughs> just, that was very good of them. Not just the crack, but the show was about friendships, wasn't it? Uh, we just all loved it together. The atmosphere was fantastic. You know, just the buzz of people around, the applause, just everything. I had a, a heifer there, I think, in 1982, a, a limousine heifer, and uh, I was standing top of the class for a while, and I remember you overtaking me and stealing that class from me with a, with a heifer, so maybe that was the one. Oh. oh. I, I forgive, I've forgiven you, Sandy, it's okay. Yeah. Well, I hope, I hope you have. That was a good thing about Smithfield. You could get beat or beat somebody, but no, no malice after. You know, it was it's a it's a friendly club, like it was a tremendous atmosphere. Mike Tucker, he gave that place such an atmosphere, um, you know, with his commentary that you you just felt it was special. Whatever you won was special. It was fantastic. They were just yeah, uh, days to you know we'll never see again. We'll never see them again. Everybody just seemed to really just get on and have. Everyone, you know, you were competitive through the show, but then at night time everybody came together and had a drink and a lot of crack and really enjoyed themselves. It was getting to know Hector Campbell that opened a lot of doors and uh, the whiskey and the drink just absolutely flowed. <laughs> the crack was just incredible. And uh, yeah, I just can't, it was, it was brilliant days, Andy, absolutely brilliant days. You've always got the memories of that and the, the fun and everything that we had was just incredible. Now I've got people from Wales down into Devon and Cornwall into Kent that I'm still in contact with, and the only reason I came up against them or ever knew them because it was the great thing Smithfield showed and Harold score. And that's a bit our mess, it's just, meeting people and the communication I had with everybody. And people like that who would come and talk to young people like me, it, it's just, just incredible, you know, these people that had so much knowledge and you learnt so much from them. One of the saddest things for me was in 2004 people were saying, is this going to be the last show? And I went, no, 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 we've got a, we knew we'd got one booked in for 2006 and then all of a sudden for Reasons beyond our own control, the show folded and uh, we never really got a chance to say goodbye and I I'll always be saddened by that. 
Anyway, it's great to hear some of these old reminiscences of that fantastic event. And to all of those of you youngsters who never got there, uh, you probably <laughs> fed up with hearing about it. But uh, thanks to all our, our guests on the podcast from uh, from 12 months ago. And uh, thanks for listening to the highlights of what has now become known as the Smithfield Tapes. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast, which was kindly sponsored by Harbro, suppliers of quality commercial and pedigree feeds and expert nutritional advice. Visit their website or find them on Facebook for more information. And while on the subject of Facebook, why don't you visit the Top Lines and Tales Facebook page, where you'll find photographs and more information to back up this episode.